I want to thank Ren for uh, teaching last week on 2 Corinthians 5, talking about how we apply this identity series that we've been learning and how we live it out in terms of being ambassadors and treating people to be reconciled to God. And Ren talked about what it means to live this life that seems irrational from worldly standards, but makes total sense according to God's economy and God's wisdom. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be intercessors, what it means to pray on behalf of others. And our passage today is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's toward the end of the New Testament, the last part of your Bible. And as you're turning there, I want to give you some background on 1 Timothy 2. The Apostle Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, which we know as 1 and 2 Timothy. And he also wrote a letter to Titus. And these are known as the pastoral epistles because they contain a lot of practical principles for pastoral care and ministry in churches, as well as qualifications for Christian leaders and pastors. Paul had just been released from his first imprisonment in Rome and uh, at the time of his writing to Timothy. And in chapter 1, verse 2, he calls Timothy his child in the faith. So we believe that probably Timothy was one of his converts, that Timothy had come to know the Lord and have a relationship with, with Christ through Paul's ministry and teaching. And Paul writes to Timothy around A.D. 63. So um, just before the persecution under Nero really kind of hit the fan and got uh, horrible, and Timothy is in Ephesus taking care of the church there and the ministry there, and Paul writes to him. And this is what we read, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and then later I'm going to switch on you and go to the New American Standard uh, Translation as we teach, because it has more of the original words that I want to talk about. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority, so that we can lead and live peaceful and quiet lives, marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is the message that God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and as an apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. One of the speakers at our men's retreat asked a question in one of the seminars that really kind of hit home and convicted me, and I thought it would really frame our discussion well today. He said, suppose God spoke to you, which that fits right after our identity series, increasingly listening for God and trying to sense the different ways that he does communicate with us, but suppose God were to come to you and say, I'm going to grant every prayer And every request that you've made in the last year, everything you've prayed, everything you've requested in the last year, done. I've heard you. The question is this. Would the world change 
or would just your world change? Pretty sobering question. Would the world change or would just our world change? And it points to the nature of what it means to be intercessors, that intercessors are not those who intercede just on their own behalf, but they are those who advocate on behalf of others. I want to take a few moments before we dive into our passage to talk about the practical reality that our identity series should have in terms of this topic of intercessory prayer. How does knowing our identity in Christ impact our experience as intercessors? And first of all, hopefully it means that very thing, that you and I have a vision that prayer is not just a privilege for ourselves, but a privilege to pray for others and to intercede for others. That intercession reaches beyond our own personal needs. Knowing our identity in God and in Christ motivates us to do a number of things. And I want to suggest just these few things. Number one, it motivates us to increasingly and continually listen for God, to practice listening prayer, where our prayers are not just us going on and on and on, but that we take time to be silent before the Lord. And we ask those questions that we were continually asking. God, what is it that you want for me to know? from your word or whatever it is. And God, what do you want me to do about it? That we take time to be silent. And as we hear from God and experience the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, that this builds confidence and excitement within us to intercede on behalf of others even more and more. As we hear God, as we become part of his plan, as we start praying bold, confident prayers, and we see him do things, and we're a part of that, it excites us, and it motivates us to do it even more. And finally, if we're getting our identity from God and not from others, then we are no longer seeking the approval and affirmation of others, but we're just looking to the Lord. And it means that we're not afraid of failure in our prayers, because it doesn't matter what other people say or think. It's knowing that we're praying to a God who, number one, loves us. Not only loves us, but loves the people that we're praying for. Has the power to grant our requests. And is constantly working all things together for our good and for his glory. And those are the things that we hold on to in the midst of sometimes praying for things for days and weeks and years. We hold on to those truths. So that if he doesn't grant our our prayer or our request, we know that it's just a matter of timing. Or we know that maybe it's not his will. If I keep hitting a wall, maybe after some time I realize maybe this isn't what God has for me. Or thirdly, that perhaps God sees things and knows things that I can't appreciate. He has a divine, total comprehensive perspective, I have a very limited, finite one, and I need to trust him for the things that don't make sense. Well, there's a sermon outlined for you in the bulletin if you want to take notes. And the first thing that I see in our passage today is that Paul charges us to pray for all people. Paul says, pray for all people on behalf of everyone everywhere. And He uses four different words. He says, I urge you that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all people. When Paul says to pray, 
He means open your eyes, broaden your horizons, go beyond your comfort zone. For the first century Jews, it was don't just pray for other Jews, for fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, but pray for Gentiles as well. Pray for non-Jews. For us today, it means pray for those who may not be part of your denomination, who may not be part of your political party, who may not be part of your tribe. Pray for those who may not seem worthy or deserving. Pray for everyone. The question that I ask myself and I would pose to you as well is, who are the people or the groups of people that are consistently absent from your prayers? That tells us a lot. And notice those four words that Paul uses, entreaties or requests, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. It's not right to make a case for making these words something that they're not, but they all have little nuances that I want to take a, a, a moment to unpack for you before we go on. The fundamental idea behind that word entreaties or requests is a sense of need. A sense of need. No one makes a, a request unless they sense uh, something within them that drives them or awakens them uh, and an urgency. Prayer begins with a sense of need and urgency. I don't think anyone ever came with a request who was just complacent or apathetic. And really it's a conviction that we can't save ourselves, that we don't have all the answers. And so we come before an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God who loves us. And we petition him. Our need, our weaknesses, our inadequacies, insufficiency is the impetus for us coming to God. If we were self-sufficient, we wouldn't come. But we're acknowledging that dependency. We're acknowledging that we don't have all the answers, that we have a need, and that sense of urgency drives us to him. The second word, prayers, is really not much different than requests, in, except for the fact that requests in Scripture are requests that are being uh, made, uh, given to people and to God whereas prayers are exclusively directed to God. We are never exhorted or commanded to pray to other people. We pray to God and God alone. Requests can be made on behalf of people or two people or to God. That's the only difference. The third word, petitions, originally meant simply to meet someone. Then over the years, it developed into holding intimate conversation with the person. And finally, it acquired the special meaning in Scripture of entering into a king's presence and submitting a petition to him. I love what John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, wrote in another of his hymns called, Come My Soul. He says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. It's always affirming and important that we understand who it is that we're coming to, who it is that we're engaging, that we're invoking, that we're imploring. Well, finally, the fourth term is thanksgivings, and it's from the Greek word eucharistia. It's where we get the English word eucharist, communion, the Lord's table, and it means a giving thanks, and we'll unpack that more in this next point, because that's Paul's second direction 
or directive to us that I see in terms of our intercessory prayer. We're not only to pray for everyone at all times and all places, but we are also to intercede with thanksgiving. And notice he doesn't say in the text with thanksgiving, but simply thanksgiving. And I think the idea is that thanks is not something that we tack on to the end of our prayer. It's not how we sign off. It's it's not something that we just randomly sprinkle or interject in our prayer, but thanksgiving is the mode in which and by which we pray. And it makes all the difference in our prayers. I said some time ago that Lisa Shaw was challenging us at staff meetings to phrase our requests in the form of praise and thanksgiving. Because so often, even prayer can become a gripe session. It can become an exercise in affirming all that's wrong with life and all that needs to change. But prayers of thanksgiving and praise are acknowledging God's power and His purpose and His plan in the midst of those things. God, as I pray for so-and-so, I don't know all that's going on, but I thank you that you do. I thank you that you're already working in ways that I can't even see or appreciate. I thank you for your promises in Scripture. You know, we're not sugarcoating the reality and the harshness of what may be going on, but we're affirming the power and the plan of God that's at work. And we're affirming and acknowledging that we don't see the total picture. And it makes a huge difference as we come to prayer. It's kind of a sense of praying out of confidence and boldness rather than from a place of almost skepticism and doubt where we're saying, God, prove yourself. If you're really there, then answer this, you know. Show that you're the Lord. Instead, we're saying, God, I know you. I have a relationship with you. I'm confident. I've seen you work in the past. And I thank you that even if you don't work now, that it's not a matter of proving your existence or that you love me or that you love them, but that you're doing something. And I'm just going to hang in there and show me how I need to be involved in this. Show me my part. It's pretty much hard to go wrong in prayer when our words are clothed in thankfulness. Paul's guidance for prayer is the same in Philippians 4, 6-7. Many of you know that by heart. The passage says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I've loved to, to say about that text that the praise precedes the peace. The praise precedes the peace. I can spend hours in prayer where I'm just griping and moaning and complaining about stuff. God, fix this, change that person, you know. And so many of our prayers really amount to informing God, you know. God, in case you haven't noticed, this is what's going on in my family. You know, here's what's going on at work. Because you probably haven't seen that, you know. Here's a situation where, you know, and God's like, really? I knew all that before you were born. I knew all that before I set the world in motion. Prayer is not informing God, it is engaging God. And God calls us to do it with an attitude of thanksgiving because the thanksgiving helps us release control to his sovereignty and his ability. Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 2 that our intercession should be bold. He says, pray for leaders, pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. 
We're to pray for everyone. We're to intercede with thanksgiving and we're to pray for our leaders. As Brittany was sharing earlier, I was convicted this week. You know, how much do I pray for leaders? How much do I pray for our city officials, for our congressmen and congresswomen? You know, do I even know their names? How much do I pray for our president and the people in charge of laws and decisions above and beyond just complaining about the situation? Convicting thought. This passage distinctly commands prayer for kings and emperors and all who are in authority. Remember that at the time that Paul wrote this, Nero was reigning, known as the cruelty of all, I mean the beast of all cruelty. He was like bad. The one under whom Paul would have eventually be executed and martyred. Probably about seven, eight years within the time of his writing to Timothy, Paul would lose his life at the hands of Nero. So Paul was not speaking lightly. But he says, pray for our leaders. Jesus himself taught in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. Writing in the second century, Theophilus of Antioch said, the honor that I will give the emperor is to pray for him, not worship him. Because understand that most of the Roman emperors demanded and enforced worship of themselves. So Theophilus of Antioch responds and says, says, The honor that I will give the emperor is to pray for him, not worship him. I will worship no one but the true and real God. For I know that the emperor was appointed by him. Romans chapter 13 makes it clear that there isn't a leader in charge that has not been allowed to be in charge by God doesn't mean that every leader represents God or follows God or knows God, but that God is sovereign over all of that. Even when God appointed Pharaoh over Egypt, Romans make sense of that by saying that God raised him up for the purpose of showing his glory through him, despite his sinfulness, despite his stubbornness and rebelliousness. God says, my power is such that I don't need puppets who just do what I say. I can work above and beyond, even through sin and through crisis. Perhaps the greatest of all intercessory prayers for an emperor is that of Clement of Rome. He wrote to the church of Corinth around 90 AD when the savagery of Domitian, the emperor, was still fresh in people's minds. And understand, this guy writes in the first century, so he's pretty hard to understand. But I want you to listen to the content and the respect that he has for the emperor and for leaders and the trust that he has in God, even in the midst of extreme persecution. It's unreal. He prays, Thou, Lord and Master, hast given our rulers and governors the power of sovereignty through thine excellent and unspeakable might, that we knowing the glory and honor which thou hast given them, may submit ourselves unto them, in nothing resisting thy will. Grant unto them, therefore, Lord, health and peace and concord. That's a word we don't use very much anymore. It comes from the Latin, which means of one mind. Con means together. Cord is from the word heart, so it means knitting hearts together, being of one mind, bringing people together. 
Grant them, O Lord, therefore, health and peace and concord, stability, that they may administer the government that thou hast given them without failure. For thou, O heavenly master, king of the ages, givest to the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are upon the earth. Do thou, Lord, direct their counsel according to that which is good and well-pleasing in thy sight, that administering the power which thou hast given them in peace and gentleness and godliness, they may obtain thy favor, not our favor, but thy favor. O thou who alone art able to do these things, and things far more exceedingly good than these for us, we praise thee through the high priest and guardian of our souls, Jesus Christ, through whom be the glory and the majesty unto thee both now and for all generations and forever and ever. Amen. Talk about a prayer of content. Talk about a prayer in the midst of crisis and and persecution that is others-focused, that is humble and real, acknowledging the sovereignty of God, that God is ultimately in control, but that there are human elements that we have to submit and obey. Powerful. Well, Paul moves on in verses 3 and 4 to direct us to pray for salvation in our intercessory prayer. He says in verse 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Few passages in all of the New Testament stress the universal nature of the gospel this clearly. We are to pray for all people. God is the Savior of all who wants all to be saved. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all. This truth resounds throughout the New Testament again and again. Last week, as Ren spoke from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, verse 32, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. This brutal and humiliating death of the crucifixion, designed to be one of the most shameful and cruel deaths of all times, Jesus says, ultimately I'm going to be lifted up, I'm going to be spotlighted, that God's answer for salvation and atonement is is lifted up and highlighted, raised up, and I will draw all people unto me. I love what William Barclay, the commentator, says about this. He says, the gospel includes those perceived as high and those who are viewed as low. Both the emperor and his power and the slave and his helplessness are included in the sweep of the gospel. Both the philosophers and their wisdom and ordinary men and women and their ignorance need the grace and truth that the gospel can bring. Within the gospel, there is no class distinction. Monarchs and commoners, rich and poor, employers and employees are all included in its limitless embrace. Someone said, since God wishes that all be saved, do we wish it? And if we wish it, then why don't we pray for it? Why is that not a part of our prayers increasingly? Before we leave this point of 
interceding for the salvation of others. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul stresses, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. Paul is combating the Gnostics and the false teachers who say that Christ was just a spirit being who came. He didn't really have a physical body. He didn't really die on the cross and atone for our sins. And so the humanity of Jesus is stressed and accentuated throughout the New Testament. And since he's the one and only God of all, he's also the source of salvation for all who will believe. If there's only one true God, then there's only one way to salvation. That's Paul's point. Again, William Barclay sums it up beautifully. He says, there is one God. We are not living in a world such as the Gnostics produced with their theories of two gods hostile to each other. We're not living in a world in which there is a horde of gods, often in competition with one another. One of the greatest sources of relief that Christianity brings to those who have worshipped many gods is the conviction that there is only one true God. To those who have lived in constant fear of the gods, it is liberating to discover that there is only one God whose name is Father and whose nature is love. If there are many gods and many mediators competing for our allegiance and love, then religion becomes something that divides people instead of uniting them. But it is precisely because there is one God and one mediator that we are joined in fellowship with one another. I would say amen. He nailed it. That's, that's precisely the point. Well, finally, Paul charges men to lead the way in verse 8. He says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And folks, we miss this in our modern day. Paul is not being sexist. He's not being chauvinistic. In Scripture, men are charged with the responsibility of leading the church and leading their families. And please hear me carefully. This is not to the exclusion of women. This is not denying the value and the role of women. It's to say, men, step it up. One of our speakers this weekend said, you know, if you want to know who Satan is attacking, then look at who's absent from the church. Speaking of men. And the truth is that even though sometimes there are many men who are physically present in church, they're checked out. They're verbally absent. They're not stepping up to leadership. They're not aspiring to, to live out the qualities and the characteristics that are found in the pastoral positions about what a leader looks like. They're not leading their, their wives and their families. And, and God is saying, it's time. It's time for men to model what a relationship with me looks like and what it means to lead others. You know, over the years, we've tried many times to incorporate testimonies into our services because it's so nice to hear what God is doing in the lives of others, and we're encouraged by that and challenged by that. And yet every time we do that, the majority of those who respond are women. And praise God for the women. But it's like, men, is God doing anything in our lives? You know, and there comes a point where we've got to get over our fear of speaking in public. We have to become passionate 
and confident that we have a message that needs to be heard because it's not our message, it's His. It's not about our glory or even anything about us, it's about Him. And it's time for us to rise up. It's time for us to lead. Well, I want to close and draw some application. The most perfect model of someone who lived in our humanity and knew their identity and lived in that identity is, of course, Jesus. And right before he went to the cross, Scripture says this in John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. You just pause there for a moment. At the climax of Christ's life, when everything seems to be hitting the fan, and he seems to be the ultimate victim, he knew that God had given him authority over everything. You know, when, when Peter jumps in and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, Jesus says, don't do that. He takes it, puts it back on the guy. The guy's probably like, you know. Somebody, somebody said the other day, I thought this was very insightful, that that guy probably went home that night and his wife said, what's that blood all over your shirt? Because he healed the ear, he didn't take away the blood. And he probably, my ear was cut off? And then it was put back on, like, it was weird. But when that happened, Jesus said, don't do that. Don't you know that I have authority to call down legions of angels right now? That they are at my disposal? So John 13, 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given authority, him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. Folks, that's the foundation of true identity. When all is said and done, that as a Christian, you know that you are a child of God, that he created you, and that he will draw you into his loving embrace at the end of time once again. That's, that's the essence of identity and living in that. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a huge difference in Thursday night, the night in which Christ was betrayed between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and that of John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating great drops of blood. He's agonizing. He's saying, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. And in the Gospel of John, there's none of that. There's just Jesus teaching his disciples. And then there's this amazing prayer in John chapter 18. And, and theologians don't know if Jesus prayed that in the garden or if he pray, prayed that in the upper room, but they know that John, the Apostle John, didn't make it up. He didn't fabricate it. And Jesus is the picture of peace and composure and, and just leadership. And I would submit this to you as one of the greatest prayers, especially in crisis, of intercession for others. Listen, just listen to me from John chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Father, my prayer is not for the world, but for those that you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me so that they might bring me glory. And now I am departing from the world, yet they are staying in this world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. And you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of your name. I guarded them so that no one would be lost except for the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. I have given them your word, and the world hates them 
because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. And now I'm asking that you not take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And that they might be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Wow. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory that you have given me because of your love for me, even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know that you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. What a prayer of intercession. It's something to to study and to look at I'm encouraging you this week in the small group study guide or even on your own to look at Paul's prayers in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3 and pick apart just the content as a template for our own prayers of intercession. Next week is Freedom Sunday. We're going to be talking about what it means to be advocates for the poor and the oppressed in terms of living out our identity in Christ. If God were to come to us and say, I'm going to grant all your requests over the last year, would the world change or would just our world change? The challenge is, as we talk about inviting people to follow Jesus as we impact our community and world, impacting our community and world starts with prayer. And it starts with a vision, a holy dissatisfaction for the way things, that, for the way things are, knowing the way that they can be through the Lord's power. Let's pray.